Hi, this is Karen. I'm calling in with my story for the Blackfishing the IUD podcast. I had the IUD in for six days, and now I have rheumatoid arthritis, <laughs> which it seemed to trigger. Um, and then I wrote this book about it, and now we're doing this awesome podcast. It's really exciting. Okay, bye. Welcome to Blackfishing the IUD, the podcast. I'm Karen Balin, author of a book called Blackfishing the IUD, newly out with Wolfman Books. Blackfishing the IUD is a collaboratively written memoir about reproductive health and the IUD, gendered medical gaslighting, and activism in the chronic illness community. I am considering the copper IUD's role in triggering my sudden onset of rheumatoid arthritis, and I share research and patient testimonies that suggest the copper IUD is actually sickening quite a lot of women in a few different ways. On this podcast, you'll hear from authors and activists and patients who have been deeply affected by the IUD or by gendered medical gaslighting in general. I am not a doctor, and neither are any of my guests, so any healing strategies talked about here should not be taken as medical advice. Hi, Claire. Hey, Karen. How are you? I am well. How are you doing? Doing great. So who did you get to talk to for this episode? I incredibly excitedly got to talk to Maya Dusenberry, who is the author of an amazing book that came out in 2018. It is called Doing Harm, The Truth About How Bad Medicine and Lazy Science Leave Women Dismissed, Misdiagnosed, and Sick. And for me, you know, I read this book after I wrote Blackfishing the IUD, which I wrote in 2017. And... It is just a heap of validating research that really confirms the kinds of biases that go on in conventional medicine from experiences you're having in the doctor's office and in emergency rooms to how medical research is conducted and the ways in which women are being excluded from those studies. And if you've ever had an experience where you are experiencing that bias, you're experiencing misdiagnosis, not being able to be heard, uh, you will read Maya's book with a, a lot of vigorous nodding and uh, gratitude for all of the kind of investigative research and journalism that she she pours into this topic. Wow. So it sounds like she's really coming at it from a scientific angle and and kind of digging into studies and doing more of an investigative report. She's a journalist through and through. Um, she's really rigorous. So if you're kind of craving that ability to attach to statistics to things like, I am a black woman and it feels to me like my pain isn't being counted for in the emergency room. Uh, well, Maya's done a lot of investigation about how that actually plays out and what kinds of statistics and knowledge we have about about that phenomena. Yeah. And so how did you first learn about Maya's work? Um, well, I have been a reader of Feministing, which is a long-running feminist blog, um, and Maya's the executive editor of that blog. So inadvertently, I've been interacting with her in that way for quite a while. But what I didn't know and was amazed to read just in the first page is that what kind of 
propelled Maya to do this research was her own diagnosis as a relatively young woman, just like me, with rheumatoid arthritis. And so there I was in like kind of the first year or so of my diagnosis, reading her narrative. And I just felt incredibly connected to her immediately because of that. And I was also really inspired that she used her own diagnosis and her own, you know, sudden change in health status as a way to really think about these issues in a larger way that went beyond her, uh, which was very inspiring to me. And I think also I just was like newly diagnosed and very like shell-shocked and um, upset. And I was so excited to talk to her because I haven't talked to that many people with RA because I don't know, I need to reach out more. And so I was like secretly using this interview as a way to just like have a support group with a famous author that I admire because she has RA too. Well, that is a great opportunity. Excellent. Well, let's listen to your conversation with Maya. Okay. Hello. Hi. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Okay. Um, It's so. I'm so excited. I have to calm down a little bit. (laughs) I've been like sipping on some bone broth, just getting getting ready. (laughs) Delicious. One thing I wanted to just start the conversation with: you really explicitly say in your book that autoimmunity is an epidemic. And that seems really relevant. And you talk about that moment when, you know, first having your diagnosis and and that moment, you relate it to the experience of getting a new car and then seeing everybody else has that same car. Yeah. I mean, I certainly relate. It's like everybody I know, a lot of my friends are in their mid to late thirties now. Mm -hmm. And it just feels like just so many women I know have autoimmunity right now. So I guess I wondered if you have some thoughts as a medical researcher and patient about this epidemic, why it's an epidemic, and also why women seem to be the bearers of this. Mm -hmm. To some extent, the the kind of perception that autoimmune disease is on the rise, I think, is partly due to better recognition. So it's Mm -hmm. not entirely about actually increasing prevalence rates, but there is some, certainly lots of research to suggest that it is also about (laughs) rising rates. I think a a pretty good consensus among researchers that toxic chemicals in the environment are contributing to that. But I mentioned this a little bit in the book, but one of the big criticisms that advocates for autoimmune diseases say is really kind of hindering our understanding is that we're still tending to kind of study them in isolation one at a time instead of looking at them collectively and and getting to the root cause of autoimmunity in general. Yeah. And I, you know, as I say in the book, I, I think we would certainly know more if it wasn't the fact that these conditions disproportionately affect women, especially chronic illness, you know, these most autoimmune diseases don't kill you outright, although they can shorten your lifespan, but they cause fatigue and pain and, and disability. Um, and it's been really easy, especially because we don't have that. We haven't until recently had that 
lens of looking at them collectively to say, you know, it's just, these are just, you know, young and middle-aged women who are, you know, tired from being working moms or they're, you know, getting older and there's always a way to sort of normalize it. So I think one of the, the most positive things about that kind of dynamic of like, oh, once you have one of these conditions and you start noticing all the um, other people who are experiencing the same thing is, is starting to kind of make that more visible and make the connection that, you know, RA and MS and all of these autoimmune diseases are very different, but also share similarities. And when it comes to thinking about like the root causes, we should be kind of joining together and, and, um, I think demanding research that, that looks at it as this, yeah, as this epidemic that has a likely has like similar root causes, um, regardless of the actual way that autoimmunity is expressed in our bodies. Yeah. I was so shocked. I I spent so much of my life being concerned that I might get MS Mm. um, because, you know, the hereditary aspects of autoimmunity are mysterious and seeing your parent go through that was, you know, it's, it's a hard disease. So, yeah, I mean, even just like growing up, you know, my mom had MS since I was 10 and it was just super in our family and a part of our family culture to know about autoimmunity and to have it in our family. But I never thought of it as a spectrum ever until just recent years of myself being an autoimmune patient. I always thought of it as I'll either get it or I won't. Mm-hmm. And and it was so like such a funny pop up. Like I'd never heard of RA. And then I didn't know that most that autoimmunity tends to be um, disparate, like in families that uh, a lot of families have um, a bunch of different autoimmune diseases mm-hmm. in them rather than a strain of one. Well, and that's what's, I mean, truly incredible about how the medical system is just set up in such a way to make it not easy for women to get diagnosed with an autoimmune disease is that, you know, we ask for family history for all mm-hmm. of these different things, but we don't, on those kind of forms, we don't classify autoimmune disease as, as a thing. So yeah, yeah, you worried about MS, but what should have happened is that like doctors were primed to think of autoimmune disease in general for you, you know, and, and the fact that that doesn't happen when it's such a low hanging fruit, like that would, I, I think would really contribute to making it easier to get early diagnosis and avoid the problem that so many women have where, they have symptoms that are brushed off as stress. Nobody for years actually does an autoimmune panel <laughs> because they don't think of it, you know, to, to just have that question would like prompt people to think of it much sooner in that diagnostic process. And that, you know, there's, there's no way to explain why something as simple as that doesn't happen without saying, oh, well, it's because... <laughs> this is like a woman's health issue that just hasn't been seen as important. Yeah. And also just a resistance to complication and to spectrum thinking. Mm. That's how we start to get a little bit more complicated with things. It would have been so productive to think about myself as somebody who's on the autoimmune spectrum, probably if a parent had it. And so what kinds of things can I do in my life to help myself 
avoid certain triggers, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it was really interesting for me to read your book the past year, which I really read it in, I think, like at least the first year or the year, first year and a half of my diagnosis. So that you were also somebody of a similar age to me who has RA, it was just kind of awesome to me and like a big deal to me in that early diagnosis time. With your book, you really start with your diagnosis. It's kind of your move. It's your ethos. And you kind of just use your experience as this launching off space for this massive inquiry. And and so my joke is sort of a self-deprecating joke about myself that in Blackfishing the IUD, I just basically hang out in your first paragraph of your book for like a whole <laughs> book where I'm just really thinking about the trauma of that diagnosis. You know, I was going online and it can be a really negative space where people in pain are writing things like, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. And, you know, you're just hearing people's sort of fossilized moans from like Mm -hmm. 2002 that just start, you know, scary about the disease that you find out you have. So it was like amazing to me to read a book that in part was a personal account of your having RA, but to kind of just watch you be sort of swift and so curious and expansive and moving off of yourself, like something about disease and diagnosis makes you so self-absorbed because you have to deal with yourself so much. Um, Mm -hmm. I I just wanted to ask you about what enabled you in writing this book to be that way. Um, I mean, I would say that the number one thing that enabled me to do it was the fact that I, my symptoms have been in remission for over five years now. And really, I did get better much quicker than a lot of people during the time when I was really in pain. And it was, I was, as you say, very consumed with myself in a way that was super frustrating to me as somebody who has always written about social justice issues and is very driven by a desire to write about not myself. I mean, I've written as a blogger, you know, would bring in my own experience occasionally, but generally have always written about political issues and um, other people's experiences. But I think especially because I was pretty sick for a time, but then got better. Once I was better, I felt really motivated to write about these issues that were a little bit bigger than my own personal experience. But I can imagine that if I were still, you know, really kind of battling the, the, the battle of being in pain every day, that my perspective would be a little bit different. Yeah, a sort of just let me, let me go with this. Let me go with this resilience. Yeah. I have. It was a really ex- exhilarating experience for me to write Blackfishing the IUD because it was such a different mode. You know, my writing has always been about sort of language experiments and just like some sort of high-minded stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And then it was so interesting to me, like, I was so excited you were going to read my book because my book is, it's coming at it from a couple different spaces. It's coming at it from, I really strongly believe this happened to me. And I'm also just in that other space of just trying to grapple with the year of me being diagnosed and feeling a lot of anger about what I feel was a massive misinformation about this medical device. Um, mm. but, but what I'm just 
really curious about is how you as so many things as a feminist, as a medical researcher, as an RA patient, um, and as somebody who has been a public advocate for the IUD, like how did you interact with blackfishing the IUD? Um, I think my writing is, has always been pretty, you know, analytical and, and logical and I'm trained as a fact checker and it's, you know, important to me to get the facts right. And I don't see that at all at odds with a like very deep and radical belief in women, (laughs) women's stories um, and anecdotal evidence. And from looking at the problems of the medical system from that like pretty bird's eye view and, and, and reading so much medical history and just like looking at all of that, really, I came away feeling like the only way to you know approach everything is to really take women's personal stories seriously and start there as the starting point to do the the more you know scientifically valid or whatever research required to to really figure out what's going on and this deeply ingrained tendency to dismiss women's really women's reports of anything whether you know and the book focuses of course on mostly on women's reports of their symptoms of diseases. But I think that that's just one component of this disbelief that also extends to women's reports of their side effects from a range of pharmaceutical and and medical treatments and their reports of what's helping them. You know, I'm really interested in, in this kind of tendency to you know, dismissed women's reports of the kind of alternative treatments that they find helpful to manage their symptoms. And, you know, the common denominator is just this distrust of women's voices until there is that double-blind clinical trials that that offer the, you know, hard proof. But as, as so much of the book is about is, is that presents this catch-22 where, you know, if we don't listen to women's voices until that we have that proof, we're never going to get it. We're never going to invest in the the kind of studies that we need to do to actually make those connections. And I think that anybody who knows anything about the history of medicine's disregard for, for women's reports of their symptoms would recognize that, you know, anecdotal evidence, of course, it's not the end all be all, but it should be the starting point to doing some hard research and, and figuring out what's going on. Yeah. And I think about that so much with the women that I've been like fortunate enough to be in contact with about this. And women, when they are reporting on their experiences or telling you what happened to them, often speak as though the exclamation points are many, the, <laughs> um, the kind of wildness of the way that they tell their story is really palpable. And women often speak this way because they're finally getting to say it or they're trying to speak through something that's not letting them speak. And you talk about this in your book. I mean, it's so relatable, that experience of being in the doctor's office and just trying to seem like reasonable. Um, Like I've read all this stuff and I know this thing that happened and I've been talking to all these women and I have things to say. And I just try to like, calm down the wild eye and just seem kind of chill and reasonable. And I just like really heavily name drop any professional 
clout I might have. Like I just act super classist and shitty. Yeah. But then I also don't want to seem too okay. Like I want to seem a little bit bad. Like it's so amazing how much effort it takes to just perform reasonable woman. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, it is remarkable how, how difficult it is to basically present as a woman in a doctor's office. And um, I think that's been a challenge in, in a lot of these interviews I've done is people want often ask for, you know, what's your advice to individual women on how to avoid some of these pitfalls? Right. Um, because of course it's, well, you, you can't avoid them. That's <laughs> the point. That's the problem. Um you know, to the extent that you can avoid them or ameliorate them. Yeah. Yeah. You rely on your, whatever privilege you have, uh, which is not a solution to the problem. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, but even, you know, even I think for those of us with a, with some privilege, educational privilege, financial privilege, there are some of these kind of double binds that are just simply unavoidable for anybody. You know, you know, how, how do you express your pain communicate it, how severe it is without coming across as hysterical? Um, Do you act very stoic um, to the point where, as some women say, you know, you're actually under-reporting your pain to be so anti-hysterical? That can backfire super easily. Um, You know, how much do you lean on that professional authority before you realize that you're coming across as, you know, the overeducated <laughs> white woman who needs oh, to get yeah. off WebMD and thinks that she knows more than the doctor, you know, because um, doctors don't like that woman either. <laughs> when we began working on this podcast, we set up a hotline and asked people to call in and leave messages with their experiences in the doctor's office. So we'll take a quick break and listen to a doctor's note. I'm going to leave a message about my experience with a neurologist at um, Mass General Hospital, and I'm going to read a couple of the notes um, that he made in my medical records. There's two of them. I was seeing a neurologist uh, in the midst of what, what would eventually be about 12 years of increasingly severe neurological symptoms um, that included, in particular, cognitive difficulty, uh, headache, and muscle weakness on the right side particularly. Um, And they were, the symptoms came on episodically and the episodes were getting increasingly severe and increasingly more frequent. I'll read first one. Um, This is about me. Uh, Mental status. The patient was alert and oriented to person, place, and time. Her attention, speech, language, memory, intellect, judgment, mood, and flow of thought were normal. Affect was predominantly blandly cheerful. I wanted to share that one because of the phrase blandly cheerful. So, you know, as I mentioned, this neurologist often saw people with mitochondrial disorders. And I think maybe, you know, um, some of the individuals that he saw were in a much more kind of compromised state uh, than I was, so they weren't able maybe to to speak for themselves and how to caretake or attend their appointments with him. But during the whole course of our time together, he sort of seemed to keep like forgetting, you know, that I was able to speak for myself. And he had a little 
spiel that he'd give um, about how it was like I was the captain and he was the navigator and there was a first mate and he kept kind of gesturing to like an empty chair beside me to sort of refer to the first mate. Um, there was no one there but he like couldn't quite adjust to that and similarly um, he would note that my boyfriend at the time didn't come into the appointments with me. You know, and he would sort of mention that. He'd be like, you know, ask, is he coming? Well, he didn't seem very feminist. Like, it was a little weird that he, like, seemed to want to invite my boyfriend into my um, medical appointment. So I would just say, no, he's not coming in, you know. Um, and this is, in fact, also in his notes. Um, you know, at the visit, she comes with her boyfriend who does not follow her to the office. She is urbane, but is obviously struck down by her condition. She avoids eye contact, but I think this is more cultural than pathological. I just want to note that these records were never private, like any patient can request them, so you can, like, fucking read this, these things about yourself. Um, but what I was saying about being called blandly cheerful, um, sort of a, like, hilarious moment when he was taking these notes as I talked to him. I don't remember how many years into the illness I was when I saw him, but it was a number of years, so I had a lot to recount and a lot of treatments that I'd tried and other doctors that I'd been to. And at a certain point, he looked at me and said, I'm going to describe your affect as blandly cheerful. Is that all right? And I, I remember just thinking, like, how incredibly rude that was and condescending to say to someone. Um, but that I couldn't really say anything about it, you know, because... There's such a pressure in those um, appointments not to seem difficult. I remember just that kind of swallowing that and being like, all right, you can call me blandly cheerful, you know, to my face um, when I'm just trying to, like, politely talk you at great length through some of the most difficult experiences of my life, which is this mysterious worsening illness. Um, anyway, so I was like, okay, I'm just <laughs> going to let him call me that, even though at the time I remember thinking like, oh, my name is, my name is Hillary, um, which means cheerful. That's what the name means. And I was like, he, he surely knows that, you know, doctors know a lot of um, Greek and Latin, like <laughs> they've encountered it. So I was like, in some part of his brain, I was like, he's just translating my name, um, probably, a, <laughs> like, which I wanted to mention at the time. I was like, well, that's actually just what my name. Um, but I thought, oh, you can't say that. That's like, that's just too much, you know. You just can't go around, like, making observations on his behavior as he's making them on yours. And now back to my conversation with Maya. I have to ask you this while we're talking. For me, the most compelling thing, it just is my own experience. You know, it is that intuition I have and the way my symptoms rolled out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have this sort of feeling of intuitive certainty about what happened to me in my case. Yeah. But then another huge moment for me was the Egyptian study that came out in 2017. Mm -hmm. And for me, just something about the way that those that study was conducted because it took, it didn't take women who had IUDs as its starting point. It took women who were established to have RA mm -hmm. um, and diagnosed with RA, living with RA as its starting point, and then just asked those women what their IUD and, and other birth control history was. And then once you take a big pool of women who have RA, it turns out like a ton of them had the copper IUD and that with the women who did have the copper IUD, their, um, 
their seropositivity, their, the markers for RA in their blood work are significantly higher. And I think there were something like 89 women or something like around that number. And I was like, I wonder if this to Maya seems compelling. Yeah. I, I mean, I thought that, you know, it's a small study, but I think that study combined with, you know, the fact that there are other studies is compelling. I mean, it also, I think, maybe gets back also to the sort of difference between if you're like looking at things from that sort of functional medicine perspective of like root causes um, and understanding things in a more complex way, the way we should understand them, because it's the reality is that (laughs) that's that RA, you know, is I think it's a quarter of the risk is that to be genetic. So that leaves a lot of environmental factors. And I think that most likely people get to that endpoint of an RA diagnosis through different routes, right? Like you might have various factors that ultimately end up tipping your immune system to dysfunction in this particular way that aren't necessarily the same for everybody. So when we talk about like whether the IUD can cause RA, I think that, you know, the sort of conventional medicine mind is looking at it like, well, okay, uh, clearly not every woman who gets an IUD gets RA, like obviously, or even gets an autoimmune disease. But like, we know that, that different things serve as triggers. We also know that different things serve as increasing the susceptibility to a trigger down the road. I think the lack of research in this area is partly about just sexism that we don't <laughs> we don't study women's health enough, but also that like it's hard to do those studies. But that doesn't mean it's not possible to do <laughs> more research than is being done. Um we were talking about empiricism before, like yeah. it's just amazing to me how how devalued that is by medicine, you know, like Mm -hmm. I, I was in the book research where I was really struck by this was learning all about multiple chemical sensitivity. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you have all of these women who are saying, you know, I'm sick. And if I avoid these things, (laughs) I feel better and being met with this total disbelief as if they are just hysterical, totally, crazy woman to think. (laughs) And it's just like mind boggling to me. Um, why, like, like how you could do that, like, like how you could look at somebody being like, I have identified what is making me sick. I have removed it from my environment Successfully. And, and successfully cured myself essentially. And still like, we won't believe you because what, because like what, what better proof for that particular problem is there than that particular experiment? We're going to take another quick break and listen to a doctor's note. So I found a lump in my right breast when I was 21. I was a senior in undergrad college and I went to my gynecologist and she set me up with a sonogram and when I went to the sonogram, the person who was doing the procedure 
kind of made a joke at her coworker saying, we keep getting young women in here. There's so much fear of cancer. Um, kind of saying, like, scoffing that it was ridiculous and uh, proceeded to do the exam and let me know that this was totally normal and that it would go away. Less than a year later, I had moved to Brooklyn, New York to pursue career in the arts and found myself waitressing to pay rent and to figure things out. And I started having some really bad pain in my hips. I was also a runner and running on the concrete and immediately just thought that it was pain from that and that I need to stretch. Then it turned into, oh, I must be sleeping weird. What is this pain? Um, meanwhile, my breast was starting to change. The feeling of it was more dense. The tissue seemed more dense. So um, I did go see a doctor, kind of for both things, the pain and the breast changes. And they told me that the breast was totally normal. This is typical of a woman my age that it would dissipate eventually. The pain was still undiagnosed as well. X-rays, things like that had happened. They couldn't find anything and I would leave. Pain would get worse. Many times it was like after work when I was tired or when I was going out late at night, hanging out with friends, hanging out with my boyfriend. A lot of times I would just feel not okay and want to go home. Pain was very off and on. It got to a point where people in my life didn't believe me. It was kind of questioned in a way that that felt like something was wrong with me, maybe mentally. Like, what am I blocking? What trauma is coming out that I'm not dealing with right now? Doctors just kept saying, you're okay, you're okay. This is normal. Um, fast forward to um, another attempt at another doctor. She immediately really pushed my insurance, got me a mammogram. Then from a mammogram, got a biopsy. Eventually I got a bone biopsy and it turned out I have stage four breast cancer and the cancer had moved to my left breast, my lymph nodes, a small amount in my lungs and mostly it had moved to my bones. I've been fighting breast cancer for now four plus years and I'm calling in. I've been doing a lot of advocacy for people with chronic health, for women, especially female identifying people. I just feel like this could have been fully avoided if not only doctors, but I had other people support and also that I trusted myself to know that I know when something is wrong with my body and for if that had just been listened to, heard out and and understood and pursued, I could have avoided a lot of this. So now I spend a lot of my time and energy really um, speaking about my experience and I'm starting a collective of other people who have had similar experiences or deal with chronic pain and other chronic health issues. And now back to my conversation with Maya. 
my big thing with like calling the book to blackfishing the IUD because it was, I really think, you know, art and like documentary filmmaking and things like that can really, like if there's a cultural shift in perception, that's when things start to really, yeah. to really move around. Yeah, I know. It, it is. It's so fascinating. One of the reasons that the medical profession is so powerful and why, why it's so dangerous that the medical profession has that tendency to d- distrust too is, is that we in the general public have this tendency to trust the medical professions. I think that medical professionals underestimate the the damage they can cause for a lot of reasons, but really underestimate that, that, you know, like the, the consequences of saying, you know, oh, nothing's wrong with you. It's a psychiatric problem or you're overreacting um, really percolate to the friends and family of this patient. And, and so, you know, that's yet another reason to be like, really have a lot of humility about whether it's appropriate to do that, you know, <laughs> and, you know, I think really underestimate how much power they have in terms of, you know, that pronouncement in the worst of circumstances means that the patient themselves decides that nothing's really wrong and that, you know, Oh, they must be overreacting. And, um, you know, that was such a common theme in, in my interviews and something that I think Mm -hmm. I underestimated when I started the research was that, you know, I think we all kind of assume, especially those of us who, are privileged enough to have a lot of authority in other spheres of our lives that like, if we were in a, a, a position where we knew something was wrong in our bodies and we're encountering medical professionals who were saying, there's nothing wrong with you, we would trust ourselves and we would fight back and we would do whatever it took to find somebody who believed us and would not doubt ourselves. But I think the reality is that it is super easy <laughs> to doubt yourself that even if you don't feel like you do, especially when you are alone interacting with the system that is really set up to accentuate this power differential between the doctor and the patient, even the most educated, privileged women find that it is difficult to have that trust in yourself. I mean, it's just such a cloying question. I really apologize. But I just <laughs> thought I would ask you about like some things that you really have enjoyed about um, like having a diagnosis. And of course, one thing to really celebrate is that you're in remission and that's so wonderful. But I just wonder if like there are things that you've really enjoyed, like just like pick, I hate, I like, I hate everything about this question, but I just also really, I get, it's like undeniable that I just like certain things about my life now that I'm just like really into certain things that I've picked up. And I just, I wonder if you have those sorts of things that you're secretly or not so secretly kind of delighted that are in your life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Through exploring lots of alternative health stuff right after I was diagnosed, I got super interested in that. And I, I just thought it was interesting to learn about these alternative healing practices and uh, learn about fermentation and uh, are you a fermenter oh yes definitely Uh, Um, (laughs) I mean that's my I just I feel like I've become this witchy brewer of so many things 
Yeah. Uh, I really enjoy it. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, you know, that's something that's so easy. People roll their eyes, you know, about all those wellness things, but they're nice things to do. So, and they're interesting things to learn about. And I make no apologies for being a sort of cliche at this point. (sighs) It's been very nice to talk to you. Yeah, it's so nice to talk to you too. Okay. All right. Have a good one. Yep. Take care. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by Wolfman Books with executive producer Claire Mullen. Our production team includes Samantha Kerr, Madeline McConnell, Brianna McNamara, Allison O'Keefe, Gerald Petruzella, Emily Sankowitz, and Hannah Snow. Thank you to all at Wolfman, Justin Carter, Jacob Kahn, Lucasa Bromfman-Verissimo, Tara Marsden, Gabriel Ramirez, and Samantha Espinoza. Our theme song is Abuse of Time by Vivid Windows, and Matt Carney has provided instrumentals. A special thanks to all of our podcast participants and everyone who called and left a message sharing your stories. Thank you.